Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS. The head of the Royal Navy has described the armed forces as being in a war for talent as they struggle to recruit and retain the people they need and with specialist skills in ever greater demand, is it time to think the previously unthinkable? Why should people have to enter the armed forces at the very lowest level and work their way up? If they've got what's required, is it time to allow older and more experienced candidates sideways entry at a higher rank? And are the armed forces too restrictive about who can and can't serve? Would raising the current age limits preserve vital skills and experience or compromise effectiveness? A minister has also suggested rethinking current rules barring some candidates with neurodiversity conditions such as ADHD or autism to enable a wider and potentially richer talent pool to sign up. These are just some of the ideas sitting on the desk of the new Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps. He has to weigh up tradition, operational effectiveness and 21st century needs before responding to an independent review of armed forces' life and careers. Lieutenant General James Swift understands the Balancing Act well. He completed his 34-year military career with a three-year term as Chief of Defence People and he's firmly in favour of making big changes. Lieutenant General James Swift, it's really good to speak to you today. Um, How big a challenge are the forces facing in getting the talent they need right now? Hi, Kate. Well, it is a challenge uh, because there's a real competition for talent out there. But too often, raw numbers are used as a proxy and not a very clever one. So, for example, as a result of the last integrated review in the Defence Command paper that followed it, the army was planned to shrink and reshape a bit. And therefore, simply noting that more people are leaving the the army than joining is not that helpful. What we really need is the right mix of skills and experience uh, to deliver the outputs that we're trying to deliver. And uh, it is really challenging at the moment. When you say um, more people are leaving than joining isn't a very helpful comparison to make, how, how do the figures, though, add up to days gone by? Is there a change there? Uh, a little. Uh, the, over time, uh, we find recruiting and retention tends to be inversely proportional to the health of the economy. So, so when unemployment is, is high, um, recruiting is high, and the opposite is equally true. There are other factors sometimes. There was a time when uh, we were heavily committed on operations that proved uh, very attractive to a large number of people and, and helped with recruiting and retention. So, so it, it varies over time, but, but what we face now is over around a million vacancies in the UK, um, low unemployment, real competition for the same sort of skills that we need in the armed forces that the wider economy needs. And that's uh, particularly acute at the moment. And is it fair to say that part of the challenge is really that the forces need more and more technical, skilled people? Uh, Certainly we we do. Um, We we continue to need some of the core attributes of courage and discipline and selfless commitment and various other things as, as well. And in many ways, I think some of our equipment could become less technical. So if you think about the uh, human-machine interface of uh, an average smartphone, you don't need to be massively technically able to be able to operate it. And if we take that sort of approach into some of our equipment, we might be able to 
to mitigate some of the, the need for technical skills, but the need for cyber, for coders, for, for other such things is, is going to increase. And there's also the challenge of keeping people, the retention that you mentioned. In the army, half of soldiers have left four to five years after joining. For officers, half have left after about 10 years, though. Yeah, um, traditionally, that has been been a successful model for most of the army. A lot of the army was and is to a degree very physical, requiring people to be away from home quite a lot. And that tended to suit younger people with fewer commitments who are more physically robust. And if you think of the rank structure of the army, there are, I don't know, nine nine rifle platoon commanders in a battalion, but only one commanding officer. So so over time, the the sort of pyramid narrowed and that sort of wastage was was fine. But I think part of the solution of the future needs to be moving away from simply a base-fed pyramid approach. And therefore, we are going to need to look at it through a different lens. And when you said that that model of soldiers um, leaving, half half of soldiers leaving after four to five years after joining and officers after about 10 years, that is, having said that, if it's a model that works, it's also an expensive model, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, if we can change that from four to five years to six to seven years, for example, uh, then that means we need to recruit fewer people, train fewer people. And those people who um, are serving will have more experience and uh, uh, more relevant uh, qualifications. So, so, of course, there's a reason why we want to, to extend that. But, mm. but we don't want necessarily everyone joining and staying for 30 years um, at, at the other end of the extreme. So when you say recruit fewer people and train fewer people, are you meaning then just to be much more analytical about who's likely to remain and who's worth investing in? No, no, it was purely a mathematical thing. If, if you imagine a bucket of water and the flow out the bottom is at the four to five year rate, uh, then that's a faster flow than than if the flow is is a late, at later years, and therefore the need to top up at the top is is less. So, so it, it's it's a purely a, a, phys- a matter of physics rather than of of uh, specific selection. Of course, the challenge is the bucket keeps changing shape. One of the big ideas from the Haythornthwaite review of incentivisation is this zigzag careers. What exactly are they? Uh, so I think they mean different things to different people. For me, the key is, well, if you imagine today's career as a, um, a sort of um, travelator in, in an airport that goes in a straight line at a fixed pace, occasionally there's an opportunity to step off it, but then it's really hard to get back on it. Uh, compare that with something like Hogwarts staircases, uh, where you may know where you want to get to, but the route to get there changes um, and your choices on that route are varied. I, I think that, to me, zigzag careers could look much more like the latter. And that could be people progressing at different paces, choosing to go faster or slower. It could be people serving and then leaving and then rejoining. It could be people uh, joining at a much later stage, having gained skills and experience outside of the armed forces. It could be more variety within the armed forces. And the Haythornthwaite report touches a little bit on this, but I would go a lot further. They see the value of mobility within a service 
I personally see the, the value of it across defence. So, so imagine a chef on an air station has been serving four or five years, he's getting a little bit bored. At the moment, it's often easier for them to leave defence altogether and go and apply their, their trade elsewhere. How much better it would be if they were able to, uh, using AI intelligently, match their skills with the skills required of other jobs in defence, possibly being a Navy chef, for example, they wouldn't have a 100% match, but we could fill in the gap, the sort of ship operating skills that are required, and they could go and do something different for a few years, saving their skill for defence, meeting their needs for variety and change. And I think by going down skills and giving the individual the choice, we can really make big strides. And do we really know how much of an impact zigzag careers could have on recruiting and retaining people for the forces? Uh, Well, what we do know is that uh, our people and potential recruits are telling us that they don't want 30-year careers. Some will do, that's fine, but not sufficient to continue filling our current model. Uh, Most people expect to have a variety of careers in their lifetime. And we we need that talent and therefore we've got to become a little bit more employee centric and say, okay, if that's the talent that we want and that's the sort of careers they want, how can we change what we're offering in order to be attractive to those people? And as I say, that might be some people joining later, having accrued their skills elsewhere, or it might be the idea of people moving around within defence much more to have the variety that they seek without having to leave defence as an employer. And the armed forces have always recruited from the very bottom up, bringing young people in at the start of their adult life, training them up. Um, that idea to suggest that the forces could benefit from bringing people a little older with skills and experience and bring them in a bit higher up, would that be heresy to suggest that? Um, it, it might appear to be for some people, but, but we already do it. And we've had some good examples recently as well. So, so for example, Padres join defence having already practised in their sending organisation. So they already naturally join at a later stage and that works really well for them. In COVID, the aeronautical sector, the aviation sector, took a um, downturn because we were obviously traveling less. So we were able to snap up both some aircraft engineers and also some aircrew who came and joined us, bringing with them all their relevant experience that they already had. And we didn't expect them all to stay forever, but uh, we hoped and, and it proved that we got value from them for a number of years and it worked for them too. So it's sort of win-win. The policy exists to do it. It's just that we need to be a little bit more open-minded as to how we might find those opportunities that, that continue to meet the standards that we've got to achieve, of course, but uh, find our talent in different ways. Some of the conversations that have come from the Haythornthwaite Review have talked about the wider eligibility criteria, allowing people to serve to an older age. The Defence People Minister has talked about recruiting neurodiverse candidates with autism or ADHD. But of course, those criteria have been created for a reason. Yeah. And therefore, as your needs change, so the criteria should change. So, So they're not set in stone. And the fact that we are perhaps physically fitter for longer, live longer, it might mean that changing the age that we serve to could change. And of course, what we really need to do is move away from a sort of one size fits all and understand that there'll be some roles where 
age and experience are, are really positive criteria and, and other roles that are really physically demanding, which might not suit everybody. But then I can think of some quite senior whippets and some quite young people who are less fit. So, so, so age is not a really good criteria, I think. It was necessary when you had a system that was sort of managed with a piece of paper and a pencil. But given the um, computing power that we've got now, I think we can be much more flexible than that. Um, and I think neurodiversity is essential uh, going forwards and absolutely something we should seek rather than be frightened of. I can think of a number of teams that I've been part of on operations as, as well as in sort of developing strategy where varied ways of thinking was perhaps sometimes difficult to manage but really key to success. And and if you've got a, an inclusive environment, then having those different inputs is, it, well, it, just think of, I don't know, Matthew Side's book, Rebel Ideas, for example, evidence is why this can be um, really important. And, and I think it's something that we, we should strive to, to um, move towards. So to those people who might think that uh, this is a move to put diversity ahead of operational effectiveness, would you argue then that it actually increases operational effectiveness? Yeah, absolutely. It's not about diversity in terms of sort of um, hitting proxy targets. It's about having a team of teams. It's about having a broad range of inputs that we all take care to listen to in order to formulate plans, to avoid groupthink and to be uh, most successful at solving complex problems. I, when I was so the job before Chief of Defence People, I was the General Officer Commanding of the 3rd United Kingdom Division. And in my planning group, so I was a Major General, but, but this guy was a Major. And he was absolutely critical to the formulating of our plans, regardless of his rank. He brought an expertise and a way of thinking that helped us to succeed. And embracing that sort of diversity is is essential. Flexible careers, wider eligibility criteria, if I can get the words out, they work better for some roles than for others. Could this create a two-tier armed forces, do you think, like blue collar and white collar? I'm not sure that we should uh, worry about Tier, you know, multi-tier armed forces. The alternative is that we have a single tier, i.e. we have a one size. And I don't think one size fits everybody. And certainly it doesn't fit all roles. There are some roles which um, require you to be forward deployed and require you to be operating away from, I don't know, refrigeration or something like that. And therefore, uh, you absolutely can't be someone who's dependent on drugs that need to be kept in a fridge. But there are other roles that require you, you to be UK-based, using your brain, where we could, uh, you, know, you, you could be next to a fridge, um, to take just, just one example. And so celebrating a rich and diverse cross-section of people to deliver our many varied roles, meaning that each person is valued for what they bring and rewarded for what they offer, then I think that is is the way forward. And it will be many-tiered rather than one or two-tiered. Does that mean that you would have to prioritise perhaps a person's skill set above their, their military uh, ability per se? Um, I'm not sure that we'd need to prioritise it, but we would want to look at them alongside each other. Perhaps you could say at the moment, 
we favour a system of generalists with a few specialists. If we start codifying all roles by the skills and experience required, uh, then you could contend that everybody um, from infant deer through operational commander to cyber operator is a specialist. They're just a specialist at different things or skilled at different things. And in some cases, those skills will be technical skills. In other cases, they might be more what we might term military skills, so sort of frontline warfighting type skills. But if every role is, is characterized in, in uh, what those attributes are, then one could conceive a situation where you spend some of your life in one particular part of the armed forces focusing on one set of skills. Take the example of the chef that I mentioned, you could have been a chef for a few years and then decide that you want to try something completely different. And rather than leaving defense, you could take the many um, soft skills you've got, your ability to deal with complex problems under time pressure um, in difficult circumstances, and then transition to a different logistic role or a different uh, other sort of role within the armed forces and pick up the technical skills required for that different role ab initio, but already with a head start in some of the non-technical skills. I mean, these kind of changes, they're, they're radical, aren't they? they? They involve fundamental changes to some centuries-old principles of our armed forces. You know how the thinking and the services and the MOD works. Is anyone actually going to be bold enough to make that kind of change? Um, it is difficult. Uh, and, and it seems... It, it, counterintuitively difficult because because on operations we're really good at the first principle of war which is selection and maintenance of the aim um, being really clear what the goal is we're trying to achieve and then working as a team to achieve that and understanding that each of us has a part to play in in the plan and we find that really difficult in the people systems space but I think it is necessary if we are going to succeed Otherwise, we risk, uh, you know, if we just continue to do the same thing the same way, we risk getting the same result, uh, which is a badly paraphrased you know, version of Einstein's definition of insanity. Um, but we won't get the people with the skills we need if we're not prepared to conceive of these sorts of changes. I mean, what kind of, assuming this is all possible and it comes into effect, how much better do you think the UK armed forces will be as a result? Well, look at the evidence in in the business space, for example, of uh, you know, the more diverse teams being uh, more successful in the bottom line. Uh, and this isn't just about diversity, but just using that as an example. And the reason I use that as an example is because behind those teams is not that you've got a variety of different people, but you've got a variety of different people, all of whom are being used for their individual strengths. And, and that's the armed forces that I think we need to uh, increasingly move towards. And, and having that flexibility and variation could make us even more powerful. People say that um, uh, the, the, the people are, are our finest asset or key capability and all the rest of it. And they're absolutely right. Our allies really value our people in the armed forces. We are highly prized on um, international staffs and, and various other places for this, the excellence that our people bring. And obviously, you know, you can't operate equipment without the right people with the right skills. So, so in all ways, we need to continue to build on a great position 
But as you said at the beginning, you know, recruiting and retention is difficult. And therefore, if we just keep doing it the same way, we're not likely to have the, enough of the right skills uh, to deliver our outputs going forward. Lieutenant General James Swift, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Kate, real pleasure. Thank you. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP.